Podcast. I, as ever, Mr. Roscoe Harold Vacant. I'm joined once again by my dear friend and most pedacious of colleagues, Mr. Gil Rokotansky. Gil, how the are you, my friend? Oh, yeah, again, you missed out a comedy middle name for me. I missed out a comedy. What do you want, Julius? PewDiePie! You've been, you've been watching this uh, YouTuber. On and off. Are you, you're, you're, another, another desperate attempt to try and appeal to, to the youth. <laughs> No, it's a desperate attempt to watch things that are really short after everybody's gone to bed. Fair enough. Fair enough. I do get up at six o'clock in the morning now, and then by the time it's like half past ten, I don't have the attention span for a movie, and I end up just sticking on YouTube. YouTube to fall asleep to, or YouTube just to kind of round the night off a wee bit? It's meant to be one. It ends up being both. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, well, there we go. Good, 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 good. PewDiePie. What, what does he actually do? Uh, just I'm not, talk, I'm... talk shit. Right. <laughs> About what? Uh, everything and anything these days. I Get him a swatch. He's mildly amusing. I read somewhere that, that uh, people that talk about random... Uh, topics on their uh, podcasts or channels a real turn off to some <laughs> gotta stay on topic you do gotta stay on topic that's the that's the thing and that is why it's slightly yes, rippled I'm... with a flat underside <laughs> yes so this week um we well firstly Gil have you been watching anything exciting we usually start off with that bit of banter to try and pretend that we're friends um <laughs> I've actually, I've been watching a couple of the the new television series. Oh, okay, so which ones? Uh, the Flash? No, I, actually, I did <laughs> watch, I did actually watch the first episode of the new right, Flash series. Come on, skip, skip but, the horror, yeah. skip the horror, uh, topic. American Horror Story, uh-huh. and The Exorcist, and... I think it kind of counts. Westworld. Oh, my goodness, yes. Well, I've actually just jumped on the American Horror Story train only five years too late. Too toot! <laughs> so I'm getting the... Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm just uh, making my way into this world and uh, very much enjoying it so far. Series one? Series one, yeah. No particularly far into it yet, but um, very much enjoying it so far. You can watch any series. Yeah, it's, they're self-contained, right? Yep. Awesome. So I'm uh, currently enjoying the murder house element and uh, yeah, hoping it gets a bit housed by the cemetery uh, pretty quick. Uh, I, I won't spoil anything. Please don't. Please, please don't. I, I mean, I'm, to be honest, I'm enjoying Jessica Lange more than anything. Yeah, I, I think that she's one of the, 
the stronger elements throughout some of the the series, although she's not in it anymore. Well, she left. Yeah, she's well. I don't know. If she was in six because I haven't bothered watching six, but she's not in seven. I think she's. I think she, maybe she left after five, which was the freak show one. Mm. So, how are you enjoying Westworld? Is that one that's uh, that I've been quite excited to check out? Obviously, brilliant movie with. Is it your Brenner? Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's an amazing movie. But um, this has got Malcolm McDowell on it, which is, <laughs> which can either be a blessing or a curse, as we find out. To our has course. it? <laughs> Malcolm McDowell's in this. I think so. Yeah, He's is not he not? Thinking of Anthony Hopkins. Is it Anthony Hopkins? Oh uh-huh. dear. Oh, so it's not even Malcolm. <laughs> it's not even Malcolm McDowell. It's a proper actor. Did you just see an advert where there was it's not like an advert? A, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, grizzled old guy with kind of short stubbly hair and a British accent you went oh it's McDowell again oh, listen I didn't even see an advert only saw the billboard so <laughs> give, me, give me a break here imagine these are the eyes that are actually driving me on the road <laughs> oh dear yeah so that's that's difficult so it's Anthony Hopkins yes although McDowell is in a trailer that I'm quite excited about okay just as a just as a wee off topic thing uh, Roger Corman's Death Race 2050. Oh, God. It looks brilliant. <laughs> there we go. The McDowell cost strikes once again. Um... <sighs> <laughs> Do you not like Death Race 2000? Um, I'll take it all you bit, to be honest. Oh, I'm that's not, a shame. I'm not a massive fan, I'm afraid. Oh, it's such great fun. So how is Westworld, more importantly? Uh, Westworld, I've only seen one episode so far, uh-huh. but it's looking quite promising. Uh-huh. So they've, well, as far as we know, at the moment, they've done away with the other worlds. Okay. Uh-huh. And it is just a massive Wild West thing. But uh-huh. I don't want to spoil too much, but the the way that they introduce it it's mm-hmm. done really nicely, where I think there will be maybe kind of slightly borrowed from the recent Battlestar Galactica series, where there will be, or maybe even you could say like Blade Runner mm-hmm. characters who don't know that they are. Oh, awesome! But I'm I'm not sure. I think that that probably will end up playing a bit of a part in it. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, it's more just setting the tone for it. Very cool. It's really well worth checking out, and HBO have made it freely available on their website. Awesome. Very cool. Is that uh, across, is that internationally or just in the US? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay, yeah. I know that geographical boundaries don't mean anything to you. <laughs> um, I spit on invisible lines. <laughs> you do, you do. Uh, you're a real internationalist in that way. And I am. I'm so a, I'm a want humanist. To be, want to be commended in that. Yeah. Um, anything else? Watch anything exciting? Uh, well, The Exorcist. The Exorcist TV show. Yep. Do, you, do you get into that with Frank or not? Uh, in the well, future. In the future. No, we just kind of mentioned it, but we didn't really speak much hmm. about it. Cool. But well, what did you think? I really, really enjoyed what well what I've seen so far it's it's not trying to be the film 
in a good way, but at the same time, there's enough similarities. If you know what I mean. Okay, yeah, certainly, certainly. So that's, cool. I mean, it does have the music, but you can't miss that out, can you? Absolutely not. I actually heard that when I was shopping. Really? Yeah. It was... One of those uh, Halloween uh, CDs that they've got. It was Poundland. So oh. it probably was. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and that's when I bought you those two presents that I told you about. What were the two presents? Remind me. They are Blu-rays. Oh, my goodness. In Poundland. I know. <laughs> Can you remember what they were? Was Hobo with a shotgun one of them? No, I already bought you that one. <laughs> Did you? Have you already told me what the Blu-rays are? Uh-huh, I sent you a photograph. Hostel 3. Hostel 3, oh, well, very memorable, okay. And Troll Hunter. Oh, Troll Hunter. I've still not seen Troll Hunter, that's very cool. Troll Hunter's a rather enjoyable film. Is Hostel 3 the one where it switches? It's the Vegas one. Yeah, it starts off one way and then switches almost immediately, and it's a little... Yeah. That's a pretty awesome start. And then it kind of goes downhill from there, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, you can no. watch the extras. I, I look forward to that, my friend. I, I didn't buy that. myself a copy of that one. <laughs> Why would you? Let's be honest. I know. Why well, would I thought you? you've got lower standards than I have. I certainly do. I certainly you get, do. You get scared easily. So, so yeah. Um, I was going to tell you that I actually met one of our uh, horror host friends um, in the flesh, no less. Um was it slightly I... less flesh than usual? <laughs> well, actually, yes. He's lost a lot of weight. My goodness, um, Duncan McLeish. He's looking excellent. Was that him out for his birthday? He was out. Um, we were at went to see the last podcast on the left. Um, they were performing at St Luke's in the Trongate, which is basically a street away from. Uh, the Barlands Ballroom, where Bible John uh, did some of his most memorable work. Um, he was and... a great dancer. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the discussion um, didn't centre on uh, Bible John, but it was more... Um, they, their podcast is, tends to be about true crime, about serial killers, about oddities, strange stories, and stuff like that. Um, so it was really cool so to... It was clear that they would have to come to Glasgow. <laughs> Well, absolutely, and it was uh, very, very cool and very fun. Did they address Bible, John? They briefly mentioned um, they briefly mentioned it, but it wasn't uh, addressed in any great detail. It was someone from the audience asked a question about it, um, but yeah, that was that was as far as it went. And I was just thinking how it's like a street away from where uh, Bible John operated, and they didn't really mention it. I just thought that was funny, but obviously it was. You wouldn't expect them to, but it was just strange that it was uh, so close in the choice of venue. Um, You didn't stand up and shout, you haven't done your homework. (laughs) Well, they actually started off with uh, a a video um, that was a compilation of pictures of Fred West to the tune of uh, Sharp Dressed Man by ZZ Top. Not Uh, Go West. So yeah, it was really, really good. By the village people. No, no. Because he lived in a small town, didn't he? He did, he did. It was a very good show. Um, So it was nice to run into uh, Duncan as well, who was at the the show. Um, Yeah, and aside from that, 
Um, I'd have gone, but I have no friends. (laughs) Don't be like that with me. (laughs) Come on. Um, Aside from that, the other kind of interesting thing that I've seen recently is uh, the the Frankenstein complex. I think um, you say Phantom Menace there. The Phantom Menace. <laughs> no, the Frankenstein Complex is, uh, well, it's it's actually called Creature Designers, uh, the Frankenstein Complex, and it's people like uh, Rick Baker, Joe Dante, Guillermo del Toro, uh, John, John Landis. Robertine is mentioned frequently, but he doesn't actually contribute to it. Um, so it's, it's things like that, um, and it's basically told in talking heads from Jack Pierce through to CGI, and very interesting. Um, and yeah, if you've got any interest in uh, the guys that are behind um, making monsters, then it's uh, definitely worth worth a look. And Rick Baker appears on pretty much every documentary about special effects now. Yeah, it does. I was actually watching Courtland Hull's documentary uh, before we started the... The Witch's Dungeon DVD? Yeah, Witch's Dungeon DVD, um, which yeah, which which kind of starts off being about uh, the, the, the Witch's Dungeon Museum and then kind of expands out the way uh, to the various influences and the people that, that Courtland has got to know over the years. Um, including uh, people like Sarah Karloff and Tom Savini and Vincent Price, uh, and Chris Tarley. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't think Mark Hamill's actually on the DVD, but yeah, very, very good and um, very enjoyable as well. And it was almost served as a nice, uh, you know, a nice companion piece to the uh, the Frankenstein Complex. So Frankenstein Complex came out on DVD on Tuesday there. So if you can get pick it up it's uh it's worth a look well i do like my documentaries so i will definitely be yeah it's very, for that one very much worth a look um aside for that obviously you and i have both watched a power of abbott and costello films yes. um and we discussed like one yeah we, <laughs> one we and watched, a half <laughs> i think we watched five or six abbott yeah. and Costello films, but i think i actually i watched a, a couple that weren't the horror ones did you go did you go rogue I did, but that was just for the fun of it, because Emily was really quite enjoying watching Luke Costello's chubby wee face. He does have a lovely chubby wee face, yeah. So the ones that we watched um, were Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Abbott and Costello meet the killer Boris Karloff, um, which is a bloody odd title, Um, Abbott and Costello (laughs) meet the mummy. Because Boris Karloff's not the killer. Spoilers. Spoiler alert, yeah. Um, Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man and meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, we didn't really get much of a chance. Spoiler alert, our uh, guest this week, I should say. Um, yeah. our, guest, our guest this week is the author, film historian and excellent, fantastic writer, um, Frank J. Delostrato. Um Now, Frank joins us to discuss his book, I Saw What I Saw When I Saw It, which is a personal history of uh, monster movies, growing up as a monster boomer, a monster kid, and uh, developing that passion for TV and film uh, throughout his life. Um, And the the book is absolutely fascinating. Um, It's available through Cult Movies Press, and we'll speak about that in more depth uh, with Frank. 
So yeah, we, those were the films that we watched in preparation for that because Frank talks in great detail about the kind of hidden depths that are in uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I wanted to ask you, Gil, obviously we, we spoke to some extent about that film, but I was wondering, were any of the other films particularly, did any of those particularly stand out to you? Did you have any thoughts on the other movies or what were your, what were your views? Well, I think as we'll probably all be discussing later on they did start off on a high which is a bit unfortunate Mm -hmm. but the I mean the Invisible Man film it's it's link to the Invisible Man is tenuous at best yeah yeah absolutely I mean it really is they might as well have called it Abbott and Costello meet Rocky yeah, I, to be honest, I had quite a lot of fun with that one. I, thought, I don't know if that it was is fun. because it was the first one that I watched, but it kind of put me in in the past when I'd watched Frankenstein, uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I'd, I'd really struggled to get it. And I think watching Meet the Invisible Man kind of gave me a wee bit of time to, to marinate in the... In they're, the, the, they're the leads in it. Yeah. Time, as opposed to yeah. being in the, in the side. Uh uh-huh. in the style of the in the style of humour, it kinda gave me a chance to get into that mindset and I think it, it gave me a better appreciation for actually jumping into uh, Meet Frankenstein. Um but yeah, I, I totally get what you mean because the again the I think quite a few of the Invisible Man sequels, the you know, they're all fairly yeah. tenuous in, in, in terms of their, their links to you know the Quadrains classic. I think you know they do, none of them really particularly compare. Um, science did ruin the Invisible Man for me when someone I, pointed out that the Invisible Man would automatically be blinded. Ah, really? Yeah, because okay. the optic nerves wouldn't work. Ah, for some reason, I can't remember why. I think it's. I think it's because the light needs to bounce. Oh, it's because the light needs to bounce uh-huh. off the back of your eye. But if there's nothing there, there's nothing for it to bounce off of. So uh, you're not going to see anything. There we go. But I think that was addressed in the man with X-ray eyes, wasn't it? I'm Somewhat. not sure. To be honest, dude. I don't know. I remember that he ripped his eyes out at the end. As you would. It's a brilliant film. Mm, awesome. What about um, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde? Uh, the Doctor Jekyll, Jekyll, uh, as they call him. Jekyll, huh? Uh, some very odd comments on gender equality all the way throughout the film. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> it starts off with a suffragette rally and some very interesting moral choices as well on the uh-huh. part of uh, Boris Karloff. Yeah, he's like if Batman decided that he was going to marry Dick Grayson, but didn't mm. tell Dick Grayson. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if the guardianship ward thing is something that we uh, we don't really get in today's <laughs> society. But yeah, it was a, a very creepy. Yeah, mm. but I think that's the the downfall of that film is that because he has these ulterior motives, Uh it removes the actual 
story that they're trying to reference. Uh huh. In so, a way, because there's there's no duality. He's he's actually turning into Hyde just so that he can do horrible things, but for people to say, well, it didn't look like that. <laughs> exactly. So it's the it's like just putting on a ski mask. Yeah, no, absolutely. A scientific ski mask. And Stevenson, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's classic is about the struggle. Yeah. Um, and I think if you take away that struggle, then all you're left with is a gimmick. Um, and yes, yeah, it's, it's basically, you know, blame it. You know, oh, that's that's not me. It's disassociation. Um, whereas there's there's a very clear struggle between monster and uh, and man. Yeah. And the suffragettes, they try and appeal to the masses with a can-can. Yeah, by withholding sex from their men until equality is achieved. Yeah, but also they do a can-can. They certainly do. Yeah. Oh, it was a fantastically odd film. (laughs) It was kind of funny watching it again because I think it's one of the ones where Whenever I have watched it in the past, I've never really paid full attention to it because it just kind of gets ludicrous. Where you're like, this isn't Jekyll and Hyde. And yeah. Why I, are I, the suffragettes even there? No, I know. I, I had more fun with this one than I did with, uh, for example, Meet the Mummy. I think because it was closer to the gothic horror that we're used to. Um, and that was obviously what they're trying to aim for was, was that type of, uh, vibe. Um, the meet the mummy. I've, I've, you know, it's, it's one of my, uh, unfortunate, uh, crosses that I've been, <laughs> is that I've never really been particularly much a mummy fan. Um, I, you know, I, I like the original beyond that. I'm not the biggest fan of the legacy, uh, movies particularly i don't yeah. know about you Gil, or i no, did to I'm, me I'm the same they told the story and the story ended and then someone decided that the story should continue yeah and they absolutely. got it they got it wrong yeah as yeah. the people that didn't go to see the third mummy movie with brendan fraser will be able to attest it's okay. truly awful. Even Rachel Weiss didn't return for that one. <laughs> yeah. So, um, following in the the similar vein, I've actually watched a movie. I don't that I, I don't know if you've seen this girl, um, but uh, from a similar period, or slightly, obviously slightly earlier, um, but similar theme was Return of the Vampire. No, I've not so, seen that one. Which is uh, Bela Lugosi's second role as uh, essentially Count da- Count Dracula, um, playing as a character called Armand Tesla, uh, the vampire, and uh, it's basically him and a werewolf who is his uh, werewolf slave. Um, and Frank talks about this in a bit of, uh, a bit of depth, uh, and either this book or one of his other books I'm not sure where I heard him speaking about this or whether it was in but in any event he's uh, he certainly did some did some uh, done some writing on this uh, topic um, but yeah very very uh, good fun and um, nice to see uh, nice to see Bela Lugosi as Dracula one more time I'm thinking that I might have seen it now that you've described it yeah possibly possibly but then it could have had a different name, or I could have just 
there's that many films from that period where you watch them and then five years later you can't remember which one's which. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, like what yeah, was the that, one that he was in with the gorilla? I th- oh, meet, uh, Bill Lugosi meets the Brooklyn gorilla. The one that you're possibly thinking about is Mark of the Vampire, which is a, a kind of remake of London After Midnight, which is where he portrays a vamp- uh, a a Dracula-like character, so a vampire, and it's him and a, a girl who are, um, I think they're, it's basically this, the, the same kind of plot as London After Midnight, mm-hmm. um, and the same, the same obvious twist, the same twist as well. Um, so yeah, uh, might be, might be worth a look, if you, uh, might be that one you're thinking of. So, um, oh, I've kind of trailed off there. <laughs> Don't know. worry about it. Um, Okay, guys, uh, so without further ado, we'll have a short break there, and then we'll be back to talk to Frank J. Delostrato, and we'll be back after this. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host, Duncan McLeish, and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic, old-school horror favourites, as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, the Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The podcast Under the Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under the Stairs, signing off. Okay, guys, and we're back. Um, it's our great privilege, once again, to welcome um, a man who guested on the show probably about three years ago now. Um, yeah, he's, back in uh, the day. <laughs> it's a man who recently uh, has released a new book um, entitled... Uh, I saw what I saw when I saw it. Um, it's about 1950s TV and how that ties in with his life, films, movies, and the you know the pursuit of all things uh, pop culture. Um, and it's Mr. Frank Delastretto, the author of Vampire Over London. Frank, welcome back to Gillen Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Is that a fair summation of... Uh, of I saw I saw and I saw it. Yeah, it's not bad. Uh, I uh, you know I I've written a lot on the classic horror movies, mm-hmm. and I, I've published you know my second book, uh, Quaint and Curious Volume of Forgotten Lore, mm-hmm. was basically essays on classic horror movies. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and but the, but then you know when I, after I finished that I said you know I didn't grow up watching these movies. These movies didn't come into my life until I was almost in my teens. Mm-hmm. The movies I grew up on and the television I grew up on was quite frankly pretty low on the on the ladder of quality. <laughs> it was so a I, uh, as well, I, I think. Yeah. yeah, so I started I started writing a book on the horror movies I grew up with, right? And what happened was happening to me is what happens to a lot of, of authors or writers. I started writing the same book again. The movie titles changed, but I was saying the same things again and I thought, you know, 
anybody that reads my first book is uh, my actually that's my second book. Everybody that reads my second book is going to be bored by the third. Right? They're going to know what's coming. And when I re you know reread it as I was writing it, I said the interesting parts here is when I bring myself into this. So that's when I said, okay, it's time to change directions. You know, I'm I'm on the wrong direction. I will make this more of a personal memoir of growing up. And I'm I'm 66 years old. I was born in 1950s, so I grew up in the 50s and 60s. And uh, you know, my earliest memories are sometime in the earliest 50s. We, you can get a debate on when <laughs> when memories actually start. But I said, okay, let me let me let me write what it was like growing up with television and movies, because quite frankly. That was the center of my life. I had friends, I had school, I had family, but when I think back to my most vivid memories of my earliest years are growing up watching television. And then when I, uh, you know, we went to, my parents took me to the movies when I was a kid, but then when I was about eight, we moved. There was a movie theater, what, a 15-minute walk away, and uh, I would go to that, I would go to the Saturday matinees every, every, oh, every Saturday I'd go to the Saturday matinees. You grew yeah. up in, uh, is it Hoboken, New Jersey, uh, Frank? I, I, my earliest years were in Hoboken. I lived in Hoboken until I was eight. And uh, Hoboken is right outside New York City, so it's almost an extension of New York City. It's a very urban environment, very sure. you know, densely packed, uh, old uh, Catholic ethnic neighborhoods, you know, I, mainly Irish and Italian. And, uh, you know, it was where my father was raised. I had my whole extended family was there. And then, like a lot of us, we moved out to the suburbs. So when I when you say Hoboken to somebody, it might mean something. It might not. When you say North Arlington, New Jersey, people don't know where or what you're talking about. But we moved to a suburb, so we had our own house, and uh, that you know was a big had a lawn. What what well what people in New Jersey call a lawn, which are pretty small by by most standards. And uh, that's when I started going to the movies. But I should, let me let me inject here. Uh, Saturday matinee didn't mean then what it means now. Okay. You know now. Now, uh, I, I think, I, you know, it's been a while since I've lived in the UK. I, I lived in Aberdeen for uh, three and a half years. Oh, of course, because you were in the oil industry prior yeah, to... Yeah, I was in the oil, yeah, in the yeah. oil before I retired. And, I mean, you know, there was, you know, they had the multi-screen theaters and whatever night shows they were showing at night, they'd usually show during the day. And so when you say a mat- Saturday matinee, it was the same movies they were always showing. In America, at least, and I don't know if this is true in Britain... In the 50s, Saturday matinee meant basically a movie for 12-year-olds. Yeah. And these would usually be old. You know, these either be cheap new movies or old, older movies. And usually they were, uh, you know, minimum rentals. It was not a very demanding audience. We had a, uh, we had a double feature often, you know, with tons of westerns in my youth. Westerns were all over the place. And, uh, they, and there'd be horror movies, science fiction movies. There'd be... Uh, uh, comedies no one could pack a saturday matinee like a walt disney movie because he would advertise the movie on his tv show the wonderful world of disney which i assume played in the uk but i don't know and uh and that would pack i mean if if walt disney said i got a new movie coming out like 101 dalmatians or even movies that are forgotten today like third man on the mountain or uh it was a Indian movie, Native American movie about Native Americans. I forget the name. These are minor films that are basically forgotten today, but they packed the Saturday matinees because the kids were all primed for them. And uh, so, so television when I was a kid, and then television and movies when I got above eight. And 
then I went, you know, by the time I was in my early teens, I was going back to the TV because that's where that's where I had discovered old movies. When I say old, I mean 1930s and 40s movies. For me, primarily comedy and horror movies, and and mystery movies, I should say, like the Sherlock Holmes movies. So that's basically what I grew up on, and my whole kind of scary my whole frame of reference my whole concept of world was built around them and that's the so I, that's the interesting thing about the book is that it's so deeply personal and everything is related back to something that you something that's happened in your childhood or you you make a reference to the fact that is it a pancho and some someone else um, are basically name, basically versions of your name and things like that. Francisco, the Italian version, things like that. Um, yeah, that, that was that was a that's a, an, a western which is pretty much forgotten today called the Cisco Kid. Ah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I've seen the Cisco Kid. Uh, Cisco Kid was a, a syndicate. When in America, when you say syndicated, it means the networks didn't produce it. The three mm-hmm. big networks in America were ABC. NBC and CBS. These were, these were like the equivalent, though, though it's not exactly equivalent of the BBC. These were the big producers, right? If you, had, if you had a show on the networks, you had made the big time. And then syndicated television was what in, independent producers would make. They'd make their series, they'd make their shows, and they'd try to sell it market to market. So think of it, you know, when you say in the movies now, you had the big studios, which, which, uh, they, well, we really don't produce movies anymore, but they finance big movies. And then you have the independent producers who are looking for a distributor, right? So uh, Cisco Kid was a – I have no idea if it ever played on the on the uh, British television or not, but Cisco Kid was a Western. And Cisco Kid's uh, sidekick was Poncho. You know, all these shows, you had the, the manly, heroic leader, and that was the Cisco Kid. And then there was his somewhat comic sidekick, and in this case, it was Poncho. And my uncle, an uncle told me once, you know, Cisco kid, he's named Francisco. And Pancho was the nickname. How that happened, I don't know. Pancho was a nickname for people named Francisco. And by the way, your name is Frank. So I, I, took, some, I took some pride in that when I was a kid. <laughs> that the, I had the same name as these two guys who I watched on TV. Honestly, I haven't seen that show over 50 years. I haven't seen it since I was a little kid. I, th- I think it pops up on cable stations every now and then. And there, there are cable stations that are devoted to just Western. So it pops up, but I haven't bothered to watch it. And quite frankly, I don't think I will because a lot of these shows don't age too well. <laughs> you know, so you have these wonderful memories of these shows. Then you watch them today, you know, it kind of creaks at the sides. You can see there's some stock footage in there and you can see the sets aren't too sophisticated, yada, yada, yada. So sometimes they recapture the magic and sometimes they don't. So I don't know if I'll ever watch it again. Well, it is out so, on uh, DVD. I'm sure. I'm, well, well I what just, is it on DVD? I just <laughs> checked and it is, but I think that I might have actually seen it at Saturday matinees because when yeah. I was a kid, my parents and I, we lived in a very rural area of Dumfries and Galloway where the local cinema did a more traditional Saturday matinee where I think they basically just looked at whatever old films they had lying about and that's what they would show. I don't think they ever even advertised what they were showing and they would have some of the the older half-hour little serials that, that they would run before yeah. And well, the, 
Cisco Kid, I think, was one of them. And there was one called The Boy with Two Heads, which was very odd because it wasn't about a boy with two heads. It was about a boy whose best friend was a severed head of somebody called Chico the Rainmaker. I think it was a British thing from the 70s, but this was a very freaky-looking little puppet who would talk to this kid. And I had... I think I had nightmares about Chico the Rainmaker, but then they would show us films like Hooper, and they weren't always age-appropriate because of the rating system here. Hooper's actually a 15, but because it was such a rural area, I don't think anyone really cared. Let me... Let me tell you a story. I was, uh, this has nothing to do with my book. I was living in Aberdeen and I noticed that there were, there were, um, movies that my sons would not be allowed to see in the UK because of the rating, but they would be allowed to see in America. Yeah. And my son, and my sons came, I, I lived in Aberdeen alone. My sons came over and my younger son is, uh, is Korean. He's adopted. And I knew they would, you know, and, and at my local theater, they were pretty tricky. They wouldn't say, are you over 12? And the kid would say, yes, right. They'd say, what year were you born? <laughs> or they'd say something like that to try to trip the kid up, and then they wouldn't let him in. So uh, I took my son to the theater, and this was a 15-rated movie, which, by the way, he had seen in the States. So I didn't think it was daring at all for him. <laughs> but he was, only 12, he was only 12 years old, and he wanted to see it again. So I said, you go up there, and you don't say a word. You just look at the man. So uh, he went up there, and the guy, said, the guy says, what year were you born? Or he asked him some question, right? And my son, Alex, just looked at him, and I said, he doesn't speak English. <laughs> He's old enough. <laughs> and I got to be, because, you know, English is the only language he does speak. But, but uh, that, got us, that got us through the gate. And I would not have done that had, he, had, I, had I not seen the movie and thought it was okay with him. But I, he had already seen the movie. He just wanted to see it again. You know how kids are. And one of the kind of interesting oh. things as well in your book is about you going to the cinema with, you know, with your parents and how basically they hated taking you to the movies because you uh, were quite, you know, fidgety and always wanting to be back home. Yeah, I was one of those. Well, you know, whenever you have two children, every parent out there that has two children, especially if they're the same gender, they're in some trait, they're opposite. Right, and my brother was a delight to take anywhere, and I was impossible to take anywhere. All I wanted to do was go home, and so at the movies I was very fidgety, and uh, my uh, I don't think you had drive-in theaters in uh, in the UK. Not so much. No, no, it's more of a kind of novelty, Frank. We get them every now and then. Yeah, uh, we had a you know drive-in theaters was a big thing when I was a kid, and when you think about it. The only thing that makes a drive-in theater work is that you have to have a lot of cheap land near a, near a population center, and you have to have a summer that's not too hot and not too cold. And uh, there's not a lot of places in the world where drive-in theaters make sense, but they made sense where I was, and my parents would take me. And, of course, when you want to go to the bathroom in a, silent th- in a, in a drive-in theater, you have to uh, get out of the car, and these cars are parked like six inches apart, so it's quite an effort to get out of the car without wrecking the guy's door on the next to you. So it would drive my parents crazy. I think they took me to two drive-ins, maybe three, and then they just gave up. So that was all my fault. I was a fidgety kid that wanted to go to the bathroom all the time. 
Let me ask you, did, did you have the Abbott and Costello show when on television? It was a half-hour program yeah. with Abbott and Costello. You but had it? it was, okay. I think it was on uh, BBC Two. Maybe it was one of these things that they would put on every once in a while. I think maybe over summer holidays when yeah. they were really just looking for lots of programming and they would put on things like the Abbott and Costello show and Harold Lloyd and mm-hmm. just some some great classics, the Three Stooges and stuff like that. I can't imagine kids these days being shown the Three Stooges and Harold Lloyd on television. I, I don't even know if any of those still air at all, which is a well, bit of a shame. Yeah, they, well, they disappeared for a while, but now they're... They're back on the cable stations. I think Abbott and Costello... Actually, it's probably easier for you. If you have the same cable stations I do, it's easier for you to see it than it is for me because I think they play them at 2.30 in the morning or something. So that would be, <laughs> what, uh, 8.30 in the morning your time or whatever. So they and, started uh, off being aimed at adults when they were on at... Was it half yeah. past 10 at night? And then they ended up being yeah. aimed at kids. And now they're on at 2.30 in the morning. They're aimed at students and stoners. Yeah, that, that's that's an incredible story. Uh, you know, you go back 60 years. Television is just starting. Programmers don't know what's going to succeed where. So Abbott and Costello, who were, you know, then were on the downside of their career. Uh, they they made these, ha- they made uh, 52 half-hour segments. So there's, the Abbott and Costello show is 52 segments in all, two seasons. And uh, on its first run, it was not successful, the first season, which is by far the best, is kind of surreal. I mean, they're not really concerned with plots, and they, and they you know, it's 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 fun to watch it because it's all over the place. And then the second season, they the first season was not a success. They managed the second season, and they got more standard plots, but that didn't succeed either. These all played at ten thirty at night, right? And uh, because I don't think they had a concept at the time of the power of the youth market. Yeah, and it and it's something for it's something. For, People my age and younger have trouble appreciating, but the uh, the the youth market, the power of, of kids, I mean, the financial power of kids, because our parents, you know, times got better, we had more disposable money, so the kids got, you know, the kids had, had things they wanted either bought for them or spend their own money on, and uh, they they had no concept of the youth market in the early 50s. Well, these, these shows should have been forgotten. I mean, there's a lot of TV series that ran 52 episodes. You'll never see it again because they came, they, they plugged through a season, they got through a second season. That's eight seasons over here. Is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah in, in America, In America, a season would be anywhere from 26 to, what, 36 episodes? Uh, would it would run from basically basically run the you know the American school year runs from September till June and or September till May depending what part of the country you're in so that's you know that's that's uh, that's eight nine months uh, but you, you know they it, so they some some so nine months is what thirty six weeks some episode some some series would have uh, uh, you know, 36 episodes, and some would have, and our cabin in Costello had, had 26, but I don't think anything less than that was a, was considered a series. Well, I just looked, and there there were 181 Isle of Lucy's, and that's only six seasons. Yeah, okay. That would, yeah, that would be considered a bit crazy these days. Yeah, uh, well, that's yeah, that's one thing. Uh, when when uh, I guess it was in the 60s, we started getting British 
television shows shown on American television. And what, you know, episode 10 is the end, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yes. but, uh, but that's uh, just a, why it is that way. I don't know. It, it basically ran with the school year. And so they started playing Abbott and Costello's when I was a kid at three and reruns, no new ones. These are all reruns. They started playing in sometime in, I think, 1955. The show went off the air. The first run episodes that played in the evenings ended, at, ended in 1953. And I think in 1955, they started reruns after school, playing them six times a week. Now, there's only 52 episodes, which means in less than 10 weeks, you've played the whole, you've played the whole series. But the kids didn't matter. The kids love to see the same thing twice. And... Uh, and I think in New York alone, each episode aired like 200 times. So that's 10,000 nights. That's equivalent to like 30 years. <laughs> and, uh, but they were, I mean, it was it. You come home after school, and if you, you know, you, you might go out and play, or if it was raining, or if it was too cold, or uh, you didn't want to go out, you'd watch Abbott and Costello. And you watch, after Abbott and Costello, they'd play Lauren Hardy shorts, and then they'd play Three Stooges shorts. But, but Abbott and Costello was a was a, a foundation of that for many years. So kids like me, uh, we grew up. You know, I, I grew up thinking of Abbott and Costello as TV stars. And uh, I do remember they made some new commercials to go with the old shows. But the but I had no idea I was watching something that that had come and gone before I even knew it was there, mm. which is true of a lot of shows that I watched. So, uh, and then. And about the late 50s, there were, there were basically no Abbott and Costello movies. Abbott and Costello made their, uh, made their first movie in 1940, made their last movie, I think, in 1956, but their heyday was in the 1940s. They made 36 movies in all. And, of course, when you're a kid, you, I didn't know these existed. These were, these were my, you know, among my favorite television stars. And... Uh, you, you mentioned oh. in the book as well, just that particularly, and it's kind of interesting because Gil's uh, daughter has had the same experience, is that you immediately uh, kind of almost formed a bond with Lou Costello. Yeah, my daughter is only 14 months old. Actually, she's not even 14 months old yet. But, you, but she, keep, she was but, like naturally drawn to, uh, to his Luke. chubby wee face. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all had a natural, I mean, we all, my, my kids my age all felt a natural bond to the Little Rascals, the Argan comedy. Mm. And a lot of us felt a bond to uh, Lou Costello, you know, Abbott and Costello. And, uh, you know, there's a handful of performers who I've never met, and half of them are dead, so I never will meet them, and that I feel a personal bond to. And I won't mention any names, but one of them had a brushing with the law doing something awful a while back, and... Somebody asked me about it. I said, well, I owe him something, so I'll cut him some slack on this. <laughs> you know, was I, was I he smuggling dogs into Australia? I, I, I'm not going to go into what it was. But, uh, <laughs> I, if, I did it, if I did it in any detail, they'd know who I'm talking about. Right, but I, okay. my opinion was, you know, I owe him more than, than, than this, so I'll give him a pass on this. That's sure okay enough. with me. And, uh, and so in the late 50s, uh, is when Abbott and Costello movies started coming on television. And, uh, and then when I was going to the Saturday matinees, I, I don't know if it was the first Saturday matinee I went to or not, but there was an Abbott and Costello movie. And I didn't know 
Abbott and Costello were in movies. You know, to me, they were TV stars. And that's, and that's true. A lot of the, a lot of the television stars I grew up with, I didn't realize. I was a little kid. I didn't realize they had whole careers before television. One of the and, awesome little comments that you make, sorry to interrupt you, Frank, is this kind of gasp that went up every time you went to a Saturday matinee and it was full of kids and someone that they recognized from TV came on the screen. Yeah. I mean, we think they were big stars and they were, they were nobodies. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's, well, there's one, there's one show that was only on the air for 39 episodes and that's Rocky Jones, Space Ranger. Yes. Ah. Uh-huh. And Rocky Jones was played by an actor named Richard Crane. Who, you know, who, you know, he, he had a career, he worked, but he was never a star or whatever. But we, you know, in 1959, I'm at the movie theater and there they're playing the alligator people with Richard and there's, you know, Richard Crane is in a rather small role and everybody recognized all the kids, all the boys certainly recognized him. We knew Richard Crane and, uh, and, you know, gasping up from the theater and, uh, you know, to, to elevate that when, uh, when, because uh, I was too young to remember, but 1950 came out a movie called From Here to Eternity, which I think was the best movie. It was Burt Lang, you know, big stars, Burt Lancaster, Deborah Carr, won Oscars and all that. And there was a gasp when a actor came on with a rather small part, and that happened to be George Reeves from Superman. <laughs> with that, you know, who did, when they made the movie, he was nobody, but when the movie came out, he was one of the most recognizable people on the planet. So uh, you know, that was the effect that I don't think people appreciated the effect that television could have. The uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of TV stars who feel they're who were who were in hit shows, who believed their careers were ruined because they were in a hit show. But the thing is, when mm-hmm. you see the same person in the same role week after week for years, I mean, you're not going to overlook that. When you see them on stage, you'll always think, you know, you see George Reeves. And and for your younger listeners or viewers, whatever, George Reeves was Superman in the 1950s television series that I think ran six seasons, and he was Superman. Yeah, you mentioned that that your uh, your kind of your ideas about um, the Thief of Baghdad and Superman and all of these different uh, things that have subsequently been remade. You know, it's never quite the same as the on Christmas Carol. Never quite the same as the first the first one that you see. Well, you know, it's like first loves. You know, you never quite get over your first love. <laughs> and uh, and you never, you know, would, when I see, you know, when I see anybody playing Superman, I measure them against George Reeves. And, and if a young person came along and said, first of all, he's, you know, George Reeves didn't play the part until he was 37. So they say he's too old uh, in terms of muscular development. He was nothing compared to the modern, you know, all these, all these stars now are really buff and all that. When you see the when you see the the, the uh, action stars from uh, 50 years ago, you say this guy's not in very good shape for what they're asking <laughs> to do. And, and again, you know, kids are absolutely right; it's just a, a different world. But I I measure all my Supermans against uh, George Reeves. I measure all my Sherlock Holmeses against Basil Rathbone. That's just the way it is. I, I'm not alone in that. They may people may measure them against the difference, but if you if you've grown up with an actor played by one character, when you see that character again played by somebody else, that's the that's the standard you have to you have to uh, judge quite, them again. Quick detour, Frank. Uh, we we keep having them, but um, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. Any other notable mentions that you like? Are you a fan of Jeremy Brett? Are you a fan of the recent Benedict Cumberbatch series? Anything like that? 
Uh, I thought, okay, Basil Rathbone will always be Sherlock Holmes to me. Yep. Uh, Jeremy Brett was fine. Uh, Robert Downey, I have trouble sitting through. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Me too. I bet too, and, and, uh, and I think uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is fine. I, in fact, I knew he'd be fine even before I saw the movie because I said, it's, you know, I can just see that. I mean, he's got the, he's got the uh, persona that, fit, that you can easily fit Holmes into. Yeah, he's Whereas got Robert sort of Downey does not, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, Robert Downey and, uh, portrays the the kind of the addict side of Holmes more. Yeah. I think, and it's it's a a strange combination. I mean, the, I've watched both of the films, and they're enjoyable popcorn action flicks at best, but they're not really enjoyable Sherlock Holmes films. No, no, they're not. And it's, you know, to me, it's not really Sherlock Holmes. It's somebody with that name, but it's not. It's not the same character. Yeah, but the and, the interesting thing that I was just thinking about the the gasp there is that over the past couple of years, we've actually seen a shift in the opposite way, where Hollywood stars are now lining up to appear in TV shows. Things like True Detective, where you had like Colin Farrell and Matthew McConaughey, and you you get these really big names who now have taken a, yeah. a jump from the big screen onto the small screen. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, and I mean, there's a couple of reasons for that. Usually, these big stars are also the producers of those shows, so they have a lot of control. Yeah. And uh, I mean, they're often producers of the movies, but they have a lot of control of what goes on. And, uh, you know, it's a part you can, you know, I, I feel sorry for some of the big stars because they really don't have to act. They uh, like, you know, the uh, like, let me give an example that I recently gave uh, was uh, Chris Pine, the, the, the current captain of the uh, Captain Kirk of the Star yeah. Trek movies now. Yeah. If you watch the movie, he doesn't have to do a lot of action. I mean, acting. I mean, the scene shifts to him. He says a couple of words. He looks concerned, and the scene scene shifts away. He's and a perfect recently, Kirk, then. <laughs> yeah, and but recently, I mean, often that leaves these actors who are well paid and wealthy looking for a chance to act. And his recent movie, uh, which is playing in America now, I don't know if it's in Britain or not, is called Hell or High Water. Where he is a uh, basically a bank robber in in the West, and Jeff Bridges is a is a Texas Ranger who's tracking him, and he mm -hmm. I mean he gets through some real acting in that. There's a real gritty part. There's, uh, there's demands in there for an actor, and they go looking for that. And I think some of them find it on these TV shows, like True Detective or wherever, where they don't have to be slotted into it, and uh, you know their their name is enough to get it on in the television, so they they have a little more artistic. Liberties, and they and that's what they're looking for. They're not they're not looking for another. You know, they have no shortage of parts that pay them big bucks, but maybe aren't too demanding on them. But they want to do some good work, and they find it where they find it. Some, you know, in the old days, actors used to go back to stage. Yeah. You know, they they because they, they you know Hollywood was great, but it wasn't. There was a part of them that wasn't satisfied by it. So they go back to stage. In the old days, they didn't go to television because uh, television was uh, was black and white. It was small screen. It didn't pay very well. You know, an actor who went who went back to television was basically admitting he was he was out of the movies and, and uh, yeah, it was seen as a failure basically. If they yeah yeah it was, a, it was a come down. TV. 
I mean, you might be able to go back, but it was not something you'd, uh, in the 1950s and 60s, an actor wouldn't see TV as a step up. And of course now, you know, an actor gets a series. I think, I think, you know, George Reeves, I think was paid $1,250 per episode. Even if you adjust that for inflation, he's not making a tremendous amount of money per episode. But now mm-hmm. on a TV series, if it's a hit, you can make a million dollars an episode or more, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the world has changed. The world has changed. And, and certainly, tele, you know, a limited series is hardly seen as they come down for an actor. Yeah, I suppose eight hours gives them a bit more of an opportunity to to actually show what they're capable of than a two-hour movie. Mm-hmm. So Frank, you no, mentioned, yeah, you mentioned no, you you mentioned obviously before we got kind of distracted. <laughs> um, you know, the book talks about the kind of firstly the kind of revelatory experience of your brother talking about uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and describing the the final sequence, and then um, you know you the the book also talks about the first time that you having been a fan of. Um, having been a fan of Abbott and Costello, start attending double bills and double features um, with, uh, I think it was Frankenstein meets the mummy and Frank, uh, sorry, Abbott and, Abbott and Costello meet the mummy and Abbott and Costello meet Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. Uh, well, the, okay, let me, let me back up a little. Back up, back up. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just give a little context for your, for your audience. Gladly. And, uh, Okay, in 1954, a show comes on America, on in America, it's syndicated, so it was on in one station in New York, one station in Dallas, one station in Chicago, called Million Dollar Movie, which would play the same movie over and over again through the week, just like a movie theater does, because that's what movie theaters do, right? And and, uh, so it picked up some movies, and then in 1956, March 1956, it played King Kong, and this just shocked everybody, because the... The viewership was incredible. Uh, one out of three Americans watched King Kong that week. I think one out of five wow, Americans watched it more than once. And it, I mean, for 1950s, this was incredible. I mean, you know, people might watch the you know the, the big sporting events that that you know, they might get a huge audience like that. But for a movie like that, now, now it did play like 18 times that week or something, you know, because it was playing several times a night, just like a movie theater, several times a night and all weekends. So. You had plenty of chance to see it, but it was it just it just blew the ratings off the chart. And uh, you know, if I had been a bit older, I probably would have watched it ten times that week. My my mother thought it was extreme decadence to watch a movie and then want to see it again. She wouldn't hear of it. <laughs> I mean, and, and and that was free. You know, if I wanted to go to a theater to, to see a movie that she knew I had seen, she would she wouldn't <laughs> let me go. She would, that's ridiculous, you know. And uh, that's what happens when you're raised by parents who were raised during the depression. They're very they're oh very yes, con- very conscious of waste. So uh, a year later, uh, at that point, none of the Universal horror movies—Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, and all—they you know we're talking about what about forty, fifty movies. None of them had been on television. And then, uh, with the success of King Kong, a package was put together called Shock Theater, and it was leased out. Again, it was syndicated, so it was leased to different stations in different cities. And but it played very late. It came on in New York, New York area. I was I was living in New Jersey, so we got our television broadcast from New York. It came on, I think, at eleven fifteen at night, and that was in nineteen fifty seven. In fact, as I say in my book, uh, Sputnik went up on October third, and 
Shock Theater premiered on October 4th. And both had big effects on my life because I became an engineer because of Sputnik. We all were pushed into going the technical careers. And, uh, and, but at that point, I had never been awake at 11.15 at night that I can remember. <laughs> the thought of staying up for a movie that started at 11.15 was just beyond me. <laughs> well, my, my brother was, you know, it, 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 I just couldn't conceive of it. 11.15 at night, that's something I will never see. You know, like I, I, had, I knew there were colored televisions, but I assumed I would never see one. And I, <laughs> and I knew there were things on you know, at midnight, but I assumed I would never see them because they were just outside my, my realm of... Uh, my realm of understanding. <laughs> my father was the night owl and my brother inherited that from him. So he was the night owl. He convinced my mother to let him sit up to watch uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And the next morning he told me about the big fight at the end of it. Right. And I listened to this. I go, wow, but I, you know, I, I, I was, I'll never get to see that. I can't stay up that late. Well, every year the horror movies came on a bit earlier. There were, there were two seasons of shock theater in America uh, 1957, 58, 1958, 59, that, uh, that played the horror movies at from 11 to like 11:15 to like 1:30 or something like that. And then, you know, they went out, then shock theater was done, but then the horror movies came back and they started playing at 9:30. and then they started, you know, a few years later. So pretty soon they were on Saturday afternoons. And that was a, that was where I saw most of the horror movies you know, the classic horror movies, uh, the universal horror movies, I saw most of them when the sun was still up. Uh, a, few wow. I, a, few, a few I didn't see, you know, a few came later that I, I you know, by the, and the, by then I was sitting up late. I, a few I saw on late night television, but most of them I saw um, when the sun was up. And I saw a lot of them on Saturdays and a lot of them after school. I remember the first time I saw Dracula. Uh, that was Bela Lugosi, the 1931 movie, was at 4.30 on a weekday. <laughs> and the, uh, you know, no internet in those days. So you would get the, you'd get the, the, the Sunday newspaper would have the listings for the week, right? So you'd open up and you'd see what was on Sunday through the next Saturday. So if, um, if you saw Saturday, there was a movie that you wanted to see. You had to wait six days for that. You know, that seemed like an eternity, <laughs> but Saturday... You know, this, and uh, that's what happened to Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein did not have a glossy television premiere. A lot of the movies that I, I fell in love with popped up on a Saturday afternoon, and they popped up on Saturday afternoons because they were basically for kids like me. And I, I guess there was enough of us, a, a bigger, a, as big a section of the demographic as necessary to make that worth somebody's while. So uh, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, I believe, had its television premiere in the New York area at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday in June 1961. I had just turned 11 years old, and I was... I, I liked monster movies, but I wasn't, you know, that into them. It wasn't my be-all and end-all. But then I saw Abbott and Costello meet uh, Frankenstein, and I, I just thought it was magic. I mean, I had seen... I think I had seen Bela Lugosi before, but I don't really remember it. But I thought he was magical. And I know that I had seen Lon Chaney before, but not as the Wolfman. And I, I don't really, I know now that I saw movies that he was in before then, but I don't really have memories of him before then. But then, mm -hmm. I, him and the monster. And, and uh, I think of it, as I, as I try to explain in my book, this was kind of a handoff. Because I grew up with Abbott and Costello. And then when, as I was outgrowing them, they handed me off to the monsters. You know, having so many Frankenstein. You sit down to see an Abbott and Costello movie, and, you, and an hour and a half later, 
All you want to see is more monster movies. I was listening to your speech uh, from the Monster Bash in mm-hmm. 2014, and you frequently make reference to the phrase something like, the indoctrination continues, <laughs> which I thought was great. Yeah, well, it was it was an indoctrination. It start, you know, it's, Abner Costello starts off animated. The opening titles have animation. And so it's basically, you know, I don't think they intended this, but but some of the most profound things that happen are not intended. You sit down to a cartoon. I mean, in the opening credits are cartoons. There's a little fat skeleton and there's a, a taller, thin skeleton. That's Abner Costello, and the monster comes in. They get so scared, they crash into each other. Their bones yeah. float into the air, and when they fall down, they spell out the title, Abner Costello meet Frankenstein. And then animated figures of animated silhouettes of the monster Dracula and the Wolfman come in. So you're sitting down, you know, and if, if someone is, if I stopped watching at that point, if we had lost power and never saw it again, I would have said, well, I think I still meet Frankenstein's an animated movie. And then, uh, then, then uh, you shift and by the, and you're, you know, you're indoctrinated into this monster lore. And yeah, it was an indoctrination. And I was on a panel a few years ago with basically people like myself, people that write on horror movies who were, you know, what we call monster kids or monster boomers, the, the post-war generation, post-World War II generation of the 1950s and 60s that, that became, that really got into the old horror movies. And I swear more than half of us, it was a panel of six people, I think, maybe eight. There were too many people on the panel, I remember. And uh, I, more than half of us, that Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein was our indoctrination into horror movies. That's where we picked it up. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's coming back to me. It's been a while since I, I've given my talk or listened to, to the recording of it. But, yeah, there was, a, there was an indoctrination in there. You were, you, were, uh, you know, as I, as I say in my book, I don't think I said this in the talk, part of the genius of Abbott and Costello's comedy was because Costello didn't understand everything, and Abbott has to explain it to him two or three times. He's actually explaining it to us. Yeah. And you know, and Abbott and but Lou Costello never quite gets it, but we did, you know. And then it becomes, and for little kids, it becomes funnier after we get it, because then we can see how confused Costello is. And to be <laughs> honest, on some of their jokes, when I since I watched started watching the show when I was five, I never got it. It took a while, took a couple of, sh- of viewings before I understood what they were talking about. But then you understood where, well, because of that, I, I, I say in my book, Bud Abbott is one of the great teachers of, of my generation because he was explaining things to us. And then they, they did, in the Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, they go into McDougal's House of Horrors, and it's, you know, they have the legends, that, the placards there that give the legends of the, of the monsters, and, and Costello tries to read it, and Abbott finishes it for him. That's where I was, okay, you know. There's a lot more detail to it, but that's the basics. That just gets you off and running. And then the uh, Lon Chaney as the Wolfman comes in and explains to Costello to how he has been bitten by a werewolf, and now every night he turns into one. There were some fantastic misunderstandings. Yeah. Yeah, don't, don't we all? Half the red-bodied men in America are doing the same. Yeah. And the well, I, I mean, can't I mean, get it pun at the start as well, which I think is one of the, it's one of the most uh, obvious innuendos out of all of their films, I think, when you've got Lou's love interest at the start, who's a very attractive young woman, and Bud says, I don't get it, and she turns around to him and says, and you never will. Yeah. 
and uh, well, it, I mean, to be a bit more adult, as people have been reading things into that, you know, when Bud says, I don't get it, get, and, and people have referred, he was talking about the sex act, and she said, and you never will. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's what I thought this morning when I was yeah, watching so, it with, so, uh, with the baby. You know, there's <laughs> a little kid, and he says, I don't get it, it means I don't understand, and she's, well, you never will understand. As an adult, I don't get any. I'm not getting any action against you, and you never will. <laughs> so. And spe- speaking about that same uh, that same sequence, uh, Frank, you go into a bit of detail about a number of little layers uh, in the film uh, that for- perhaps foreshadow things that are going to happen throughout. So, for example, Lou barks uh, at uh, the woman's fox uh, fox fur scarf. Um, some other little things like that that you mentioned. Would you like to elaborate on some of those little nuances that you you perhaps didn't yeah. notice before? Yeah. First, 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 let me say that uh, when you tell someone who uh, that Abbott and Co- a movie called Abbott and Costello, which let's face it is an absurdist title, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a movie Abbott and Costello may have subtleties that you overlooked when you saw it. They, I mean, it doesn't register. No, I you know, can't happen. You know, nothing in that movie could possibly get by me and i would say well a lot of it got by me and i still i still pick up things that oh okay that's what they're doing uh you know the and what started me on this is uh, i know a few years ago i got the abbott and costello meet frank the new dvd of the abbott and costello meet frankenstein and i listened to the audio by by greg bank and he says watch you know the first it is the wolfman at the very be- near near very near the beginning of the movie the, the lawrence talbot turns into the wolfman and and Greg Mank said in his recording, well, look look at the look at the light coming through the the window as he does that, and I, I swear I'd watched that movie a hundred times. I'd never noticed how the moon comes up and you see the light from the blinds on the window behind him getting more and more intense. It's a, it's a wonderful effect, and uh, it calls no attention to itself. And that's it. There's so much in the movie that is subtle and ingenious that calls no attention to itself, mm-hmm. and the. And like they, I, like in my talk, I, I emphasized uh, in the beginning, you know, the typical Abbott Costello uh, sight joke or physical joke. Uh, Costello's a baggage clerk. He, the bag he wants to get is at the bottom of a pile. He pulls it out. The pile uh, falls down on him, and he's on the ground. And you know, we're laughing. And in comes Sandra Mornay, who uh, basically nurtures him. You know, he's lying on the ground, and she's she's sitting over him. And that image appears twice more in the movie. Once when she's she's standing over the monster, and that's when we find out that her interest in Wilbur is not is is uh, is not romantic at all. That she's in league with Dracula to get Wilbur's brain and put it into the monster. And then it appears near the end of the movie when uh, when she is standing over the operating table about to operate on Wilbur. And and you know, as, as I say in the talk, this you know. That imagery, someone has to notice. I mean, someone has to set up the cameras. Someone has to tell people to be somewhere. Somebody's saying, you know, we've used this shot before. Let's use it again or whatever. And that's that's that is good storytelling because it, it kind of folds the movie into itself. You know, it it, uh, it brings you know it brings the whole thing together. And uh, and and the the uh, incident with Wilbur barking before he talks to the Wolfman, and he will. For those who haven't seen the movie, early in the movie, Lawrence Talbot calls from London to La Mirada, Florida. Now, let me say, 
you can, young people can't appreciate this, but that was a calling, making a telephone call from the United States to Britain or, or vice versa was a big deal in the 1940s. And it was a big deal in the 50s and a big deal in the 60s. It isn't in what, the last 20 years that's really become something you can... Well, see, I, I, the first time I lived overseas was in 1980, and it was a big deal then. <laughs> so it's really, you know, this was a big deal trying to get this call through. And, uh, and he's trying to get it through. It's taking forever. But, uh, but eventually Wilbur talks to him, but it's too late. Lawrence Talbert turns into the Wolfman, and all he can do is growl into the phone. <laughs> Before that scene where, he, where, Lawrence, where uh, Albert, where, uh, excuse me, uh, Lou Costello growls into the, uh, it talks on the phone to Lawrence Talbot, a woman comes in and she's wearing one of these fur wraps, which I imagine today is politically incorrect. And that is, it's, it's a, it's a, it's the hide of a fox or something, and it still has the head on it. And you don't see those too often today, unless you go to an antique store, but you saw them a lot in the 19, well, I, I remember them from the 1950s. So you saw them a lot, 50, 60, 70 years ago. They were kind of fashionable. And I, I think I said in my talk when I was a little kid, I was uh, I was sitting on a my my mother took me to a store. She set me on a chair while she shopped, and this woman came by, and had this big fur on, and on the end of it were three heads, <laughs> right at right at my eye level. <laughs> I'll never, and I will never forget that. And uh, so it happens to Wilbur. This woman comes in. She wants her bag, and she's got a wrap on which has a a, uh, you know, a fox or something. And Wilbur sees it and starts barking at it. You know, a typical Lou Costello inane joke but i said you know before something in him before he talks to a werewolf he's he's barking at a at a at a a, you know the werewolf's cousin the fox and you know certainly that that must have been intentional to someone there must have said oh you know let's let's put that in there probably costello and uh then throughout the movie the monsters and the comedians are paralleled and there's a reason for uh, Bud Abbott's character being paralleled with Lon Chaney because they have to be mistaken for each other. Abbott has to get accused of committing a crime that the Wolfman commits. But they are paralleled throughout the movie. I mean, they wear the same clothes, yada, yada, yada. And, uh, and Costello is paralleled throughout with Dracula. And, and you know, I, I, if I had my talk in front of me, I could probably give more examples. But they, this is... I think this is one of the reasons this is a great movie because, in addition to you know the the, uh, the story, the comedian, the comedians, the monsters, and all that, but it, it really there is there is a lot going on there. And uh, when you try to explain it to people, most you know not not people like us who probably may watch the movie at least once a year. Yeah. Uh, um, a lot of people saw that it was good, but I, you know I saw it when I was twelve. You know I said, well, <laughs> maybe you missed something when you were twelve, but there's something there's some neat stuff going on in that movie. And there's neat stuff going on in a lot of the movies. Uh, I, I always say that if William Shakespeare would gotten a time machine, he'd come forward. The best he might be able to do was get a, is get a job as a scriptwriter for horror movies. So I mean, there are you know the, the movie the movies may range from classic to inane, but even the inane movies have people working on them that that have talent. They just don't have anywhere to go to get a paycheck that day. Yeah, it is a shame that this was the the first of the Abbott and Costello meet kind of horror character films because it is the best I mean the the Jekyll and Hyde one I I can see what they're doing in it but I mean as you say in your book it's a it's a 
kind of poor adaptation of what already at that time was a poor adaptation because Jekyll and Hyde's never really been treated as a proper adaptation of the book, particularly the early on ones. I mean, the the amount of people who probably think they know the story of Jekyll and Hyde or Jekyll and Hyde, but all the way through Abbott and Costello meet Jekyll and Hyde, they're calling him Jekyll. They don't even get the name right. And the, the whole suffragette thing now these days looks very very odd where the suffragettes tried to yeah. attract support for their cause by doing a can-can and withholding sex and well. withholding sex yep yeah, that's the one power and then at the end of it they have the the lead suffragette who is essentially standing there going, I will be your new leader. And that just seems very odd. But also the the young male lead from the Jekyll and Hyde story, I can't remember what his name is, but his introduction to the entire film is someone asking him, what do you think of the suffrage movement? And he says something like, I don't much care for it. And he's the romantic lead. Yeah. Do you know, actually, uh, I have to say I quite liked this one. Um, it's probably my, you know, second favourite after <laughs> after Abbott and Costello meet uh, Frankenstein. I'm never really too much of a mummy person. Um, but, yeah, I, I thought it was great because of the kind of, um, well, because of Boris Karloff um, as much as anything. Um, but, yeah, I you mentioned in the book, Frank, that you felt that it was kind of a gothic horror story that almost could be doing with uh, Abbott and Costello being removed from it. Yeah, they are. Well, I mean, I'm, uh, I personally am not a fan of that movie. And uh, sure. after Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, quality-wise, their movies kind of fall off a cliff. And... Uh, they 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 really didn't make what I consider a good movie after that. Their early movies mm. in the 1940s, and I I watched three of their movies this, uh, today just to get just so I'd you know be primed for Abbott to talk about Abbott and Costello and all of them from the early 40s, and that's where my favorites are, except for Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, where somehow they got they got everything right. It's like the it's like the athlete who's over the hill, but he goes out and have one last game, and then he's yeah. never quite the same again, and. Uh, so, you know, Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Abbott and Costello meet The Mummy have a dear place in my heart because those are the first two Abbott and Costello movies I saw when I started going to the movies. And I, I mean, they, they played it, even though, let's see, one was, well, they were both several years. They weren't ancient then, they were, but they were both several years old, but they could no doubt be had for a very low rental price. Uh, they played at the movies a lot when I started going to the Saturday matinees for kids. And, but now, you know, I, 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 if I write an article on the mummies on mummies or on Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde, I may watch them again, but I don't see myself watching them again. And basically, you know, Abbott and still were getting older. Uh, they still had the same, you know, they, the words might change, but it was still the same basic jokes. And, uh, the thing when I, when I started, first started discovering Abbott and Costello, movies, the ones from the 40s, you know, Costello was a young, a young man, and he was a ball of energy. I mean, he was just, uh, you know, he was, he was just all over the place. And, you know, the, the, 
and their timing was razor sharp. They were, their routines were fast. They were, it was really a discovery for me because I, I'd basically been watching on the Abbott and Costello show. I'd basically been watching two men who were past their primes, but I never knew it. And then when I saw them uh, uh, younger and uh, you know, certainly more energetic and the material was new, and even though I'd heard the material before, when it's new and it's delivered by people that know it's new, it, has a, it takes on a vibrancy that you don't get, you, you can't really repeat. And uh, so, yeah, I became a big fan of the early Abbott and Costello movies, a fan of a big, big, big fan of Abbott and Costello movie Frankenstein. But after that, I saw them because I had to see all the Abbott and Costello movies, but I'll probably never watch them again unless I have to write about them or whatever. Apologies. <laughs> okay. And, and, you, and you're quite right. I mean, I, I said it. You could, I think Abbott and Costello would be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde would be a better movie with Abbott and Costello because they're really not central to the plot as they are in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. They're, you know, they're kind of on the, uh, nibbling at the edges and all that, but, but uh, they, they kind of get in the way. That's my opinion. I, I, when I, I know if I go to a movie conference and say that, I'll get in big arguments with people. <laughs> but that's no, my, I, you know. I completely agree with you. I think that they would have been better off just re-releasing Hold That Ghost. Yeah, uh, Hold That Ghost, uh, Abbott and Costello in Society, uh, their army, their military movies, Buck Privates in the Navy, keep them flying. Yeah, Roscoe actually bought me the the Universal Abbott and Costello box set for my birthday last year. All right. And I spent February just watching Abbott and Costello movies, and -hmm. it was great. But then you get to the end of the box set where you do get to the... The point where Meet Frankenstein suddenly like stepping off a cliff, where yep. you you do start to see. I mean, I think uh, Abbott Costello Meet Frankenstein reuses an old routine, but that happens a couple of times across the movies. But then after that, you do just start to notice that they're recycling a lot more. And well, even even Abbott, I mean, if you watch Hold That Ghost. Even Abbott and Costello meet uh, Frankenstein borrows a lot from Hold That Ghost. It has you know, the the, moving, the candle. Yeah, the moving candle routine, mm. and then there's you know there's the wall that revolves, and uh, you know a lot a lot of the gimmicks had been used before, but you know every great classic the, the elements have always preceded it, but the the great classics somehow weave them together better and give them more life than they had before. Yeah. Okay, uh, well, I mean, I mean, before we leave Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, uh, six times, I think, in the movie, Costello says, I saw what I saw when I saw it, mm. or a variation thereof. And, uh, you know, my book is broken into, uh, has an introduction, five parts, and then, then a, an epilogue. And uh, six of those seven start with a quote from, uh, well, five times, Lou Costello says, I saw what I saw when I saw it. Once, Bud Abbott says it. And then the, the section on uh, where I talk about Beta Lugosi, I, I, instead of using that, I use the, the description by uh, Lou Costello of his first meeting with Count Dracula. But I saw, and I was, you know, what to call this book? I was, I was going all over the map. I had no title for it. <laughs> I, I was going to call it Confessions of This, Confessions of That. Then when you, you put Confessions of in a search engine, like 8,000 books have been called Confessions of It. So I had and to come up with something. People would expect something salacious as well. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, there was all sorts of, you know, I had all sorts of ideas. None of them really pleased me. And then I was watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And it's when Bud Abbott says it, when he, when he finally accepts that Dracula, the monster and the Wolfman are for real. He says that I saw what I saw when I saw it. And that's, that's going to hit me. That's the title for my book. It's, so, it's interesting uh, because obviously that almost uh, references I, I, the the fact that when, if you missed something on TV, quite often, you know, it was gone for, you know, five years, ten years. It was just whenever it was going to be played next. You didn't know when it was going to be programmed again. Um, and I thought that was an interesting... Uh, and I mean, even within myself and Gil, I mean, we were old enough to remember as well the, you know, pre-internet days where if you couldn't get it in a shop and it was far more difficult to get a hold of uh, certain VHS tapes um, and not everything was necessarily in circulation or in distribution. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, no, it's, it's something uh, young people can't appreciate that uh, they can't appreciate the thrill of getting the Sunday paper and seeing what movies would be coming on for the next week. And wow, here's a movie I've always wanted to see. Wow, here's a movie I didn't even know existed, but look who's in it. It must be good. Things like that. And that was uh, excitement. And you'd, you'd get to school on Monday, and you, you always had a few friends who were into the same movies. I didn't have many, but I had one or two. And we'd talk about them, and sometimes you could learn about them during the week, but that, that, was, that was unusual. So that was a real thrill. I mean, it was a, you open the paper, there it is, you know, House of Frankenstein. Wow, what's that about? Because you couldn't read about these movies. It was it was very hard to uh, find out anything. You couldn't even find out what movies existed like you can now. When I and got if it was the first uh, episode, you would have to describe it to someone because yeah. they might want to catch up with it from episode two. These days, you don't even have that conversation. They just go, oh, is it good? I might, might catch it on whatever the on-demand service is. Yeah. Now, let me let me say, that's a better world. I think this is a better world than we have. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But we're, we're losing those conversations as well because there's a, there's a thing now that I've noticed where so many people that I know are completely moving away from watching any sort of live television. I've actually just cancelled my television subscription package because I realised that I rarely ever watch anything live. And that means that what used to be water cooler moments, they're now about, have you sat down and watched any of whatever the new Netflix series is on the first day of release? And we're now they're now finally starting to get around to the point where they're making a big deal of a series coming out on Netflix rather than it just kind of appearing. But that sort of conversation, it used to be fun. And now it starts off with, did you see that? And someone says no, and then you just have to end it. <laughs> well, let me say, it is a better world, but one thing we've lost is the shared experience. Yeah. And that is that we're, you know, there's if you have cable television now, there's hundreds of stations, you know. Uh, back when I was a kid, I lived in New York City, and New York City had seven stations when I was growing up. And I didn't realize at the time that most cities in America didn't have that many. I mean, I think L.A. had five. I think Chicago might have had four or five. But, you know, where I'm living now in Houston, they would have had two or three. And, 
And but even so, even with seven stations, you know, King. Did you see King Kong? You know, or a movie came on? Did you see that? Or a, uh, you know, because we had less outlets, there were less less places for us to turn for entertainment. Yeah. And and which you know, which is which is you know not good compared to day. But one thing it did give us was the shared experience. You had a you had a commonality of experience, a, a certain core. You know, we all have our own experience, but there was a certain core. If you watch TV, you must have seen this because everybody saw this. Like when uh, V was released in the eighties, as the original miniseries, and it was released. I mean, it it would have been at the most an eight-hour time difference between the UK and the US, but that didn't make any difference because we didn't have the internet, so there was no such thing as spoilers, and everybody watched V. And the idea of there being a five-night TV series that actually captures that sort of audience and that sort of interest just seems like it would have to be the most incredible show ever made now for it to to even touch half of what V did. Yeah, and, uh, well, I mean, let's face it, when we were kids, the world was kind of living in a box. It wasn't going after its potential in a lot of areas. And things were, like, you watch some, some 1950s movies and you, you say, God, how conservative, you know, did they all have to be so conservative? There's no real daring, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that, you know, I think that's a, a secondary reason why, why some kids from my generation were so attracted to horror and science fiction, because that was, that was, that was where you didn't know what was coming next. And well, if you watch about a half dozen of them, you could pretty much guess what the, what the pattern would be, but yeah. it was a different pattern than what we were being, uh, Exposed to on what you would, would have, for want of a better word, the mainline media, the main, you know, the big stations and all that. And as I, as I said in my my book, I, I talk a lot about the Twilight Zone in my book, which was a, uh, a series that came out in 1959 and lasted until 1965. And you know, some of the best television I ever saw was on the Twilight Zone, but some of the worst was. I mean, some episodes just don't work. Yeah. And uh, and uh, you know. I'll run through the on, on on the cable stations that have Twilight Zone. I'll run through them, and and Rod Serling said, you know, I uh, I think I my batting average is about one out of three. Uh, <laughs> I'd say maybe it was one out of five, you know, but that one out of five, those were, I mean, those are that is classic television. I, I wrote I wrote an article recently on um, I don't know, is that the article I sent to you on the, on the, my favorite Twilight Zone episodes? That um, I've not had a chance to read that yet, Frank. I'm afraid. Okay, that's that's fine. But I I uh, I forget how many. Uh, it's I, I think it's, it's thirteen. It's thirteen. Is it what? Thirteen. Yeah, is... yeah. Well, I I could get the. I, mean, it is, I forget how many episodes there are. Twilight Zone. There's, it might be a hundred and it was on five seasons. So many, say 150, 160 episodes. I got it down to twenty of my favorites. Oh, is it twenty? I thought it was thirteen. No, it wasn't. The the, uh, the ah. guy I wrote it for, though he didn't publish, it wouldn't take. He didn't want to. He wanted a shorter article. Ah, okay. So I I got it down to thirteen, but uh, I mean those those twenty uh, that I forget what the six I kicked out were. But there's this actually there's fourteen in there because I connect two of them that aren't aren't connected, but they both have William Shatner, so I went ahead and connected them. <laughs> oh, so nightmare and, uh, at twenty thousand feet will be yeah the uh, the. Uh, the one about the the uh, fortune, the devil fortune telling machine—I forget the name of it—and the oh, nightmare yeah. twenty. Uh, I tie those together, but 
I mean, there, that's 20 episodes of television uh, that I would not have, you know, I would, I would not have missed those for anything. But that means there was 140, which, which, which range from okay to bad. Some of them are really bad. But as I say in my book, the, you know, the other TV series were kind of tried and true. I mean, they, they, some episodes you don't like better than other, but they were, they were always on an even keel. You, you knew what you were getting. They were known quantities. It was something you could sit down and relax to. Whereas Twilight Zone, you kind of had to watch. And, uh, and I, I'm, I, I, you know, I, know I, can't, I can't say I know this for a fact, but my guess is Rod Serling, when he put that, that show on, didn't realize that the people my age, you know, 12, 14, were going to be the prime uh, lovers of that show, the ones that kept it alive for so long. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and as I say in the book, we were... When these shows got into time travel or things like that, the kids probably knew more about the fourth dimension than their parents did because, you know, we, were, we went to that, – that was what they taught us at school. That was – you know, we heard that over and over again, time is the fourth dimension. And then Rod Serling comes out and said there's a fifth dimension, and that's the Twilight Zone. And uh, we were probably better, better primed for that. But uh, Do you think there was yeah, an expectation I, that because at the time it would be very much seen that the – man was the head of the household and would probably have bought the television the television should be aimed at the father because he'd be in charge of the button yeah uh well fortunately my father was usually asleep on the couch by, <laughs> by then but as i said as i said in the book you have to i had to be careful because the you know you didn't have remotes in those days and when you changed the channel it clicked and that made a loud click <laughs> and he'd wake up so i'd i'd have to tune the tv down Turn it ever so, you know, trying to get past that click without a sharp click and then tune it back up, and then he wouldn't wake up. Uh, I but if I, he'd be sleeping. My father, you know, I, I love my father and I miss him, but he would be a pain in the ass when it came to the TV because he'd be sound asleep in front of it, but he still he expected to have his shows on. <laughs> I suppose the, the UK equivalent of the Twilight Zone would be probably Tales of the Unexpected, uh, the Roald Dahl series. Don't know if you ever saw that. I never, I, no, I, Ronald Dahl series had a short, he had a short-lived series here in the early '60s. I think I have seen an episode or two of Tales of the Unexpected, but I, I couldn't talk about it. I don't know anything about it. Really, really good, and it's kind of similar, to be honest, Frank. It's kind of hit yeah. and miss. So it's like every every odd one is excellent. So they're probably about twenty-five. 25 minutes long each um, and each tend to have a twist ending but not always. Some are reflections on his youth but not always. Some are other people's stories that have been adapted um, but everyone is introduced by Roald Dahl telling a, you know, giving a short introduction that reflects on his experience as a writer. It's really good and really worth, uh, uh, worth the watch if you ever get a chance. Okay, I, uh, I'll check. Well, I still have cable TV, so I'll check and see if it's out there on the man. <laughs> There's very nothing good. quite as good as timing up at last, but very, I don't think that there's many shows that can be as... That's, that's one of my favourite episodes of any television series of all time. The uh, the one with Burgess Meredith as the librarian who... Yeah. As the bank teller who gets... The bank teller, yep. Yeah. Reading, yeah. reading his books in the vault whilst eating his sandwiches. And yeah, like, that was brings my article. That was one of my top twenty, but I had a, I, it didn't make the final cut when I brought it down to thirteen or fourteen. 
Uh, I I put it at number one. I don't. I think it's just the association with when I first saw it as a kid. I what? just felt so sorry for that character. Yeah, but, the poor guy. Uh, yeah. yeah, nothing worse than losing your glasses. <laughs> yeah. So, is there, is there any TV that excites you now, Frank? Uh, well, the TV show. I mean, I, I most of the TV I watch is uh, well. Let me say this: a person asked me, a, 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 a woman from England asked me, why do Americans have watch so much TV? And I said, well, we always had the TV on, though I don't know how often we actually look at it. <laughs> so, why? <laughs> Now that we have the cable news stations, I, I tuned in the news most of the time. Uh, the, uh, I mean, I, I was a big fan of American Horror Story season one, and then it kind of went. It's, it's on season six now, so season six is just you know it's only three episodes old. I can't, I can't swear to it. It's going to be good or bad yet. But I, episode one, I thought was really great. I mean, season one, I thought was really great, and then it kind of went downhill from there. Do you, do you know the yeah. series I'm talking about? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I've and, uh, I loved the first season. I thought it was superb, and it was it was it was just really refreshing to see a horror series that that didn't really seem to to care. It just was doing its own thing, and it was. It was being pretty unique, and then the second series just seemed to to go well. We're bringing back the the cast, and they're all going to play different characters. And now we're going to tell a different story, and that story wasn't quite as good. And then the third series, you're like, okay, so same cast, different scenarios, but I tuned out halfway through that one. And then I started watching the the fourth series. I think I tuned out two thirds of the way through that series five. I haven't seen a single episode of series six. I watched the first episode and I thought this actually seems quite good, even though it was doing it. I don't know if either of you have seen any of it yet. Uh, let's see. Well, I mean, first series I thought was tremendous. Season one I thought was tremendous. Season two, which I think takes place in the uh, the asylum, the lunatic asylum, yeah, the, the whatever asylum it is, that was. I got through all of that. It wasn't great, but it was it was good. But it couldn't stand up to the first season. Yeah. The third season was that the one in the carnival? That was the, the no. I thought season three was the witch one. No, the witch one. I didn't care for that one at all, and. Uh, I tuned the, out of it once they brought the witch back into yeah. it. The carnival, I guess. That, I guess that was the fourth season. The carnival was the fourth season, where uh, I think it was the last season with Hope Lang. And then uh, season five uh, was Hotel. Jessica, Jessica, and uh, four, four. now the fifth season was a Hotel. My wife and I watched the first episode, and it was just gross and weird, but it wasn't very compelling, you know. Mm-hmm. Like the first season, the first season was compelling. I mean, that's where you really gave a damn about the characters. And uh, the fifth season was the hotel. We got through episode one, and we said no thanks. Now a friend has recently said, yeah, it, it tones down after episode one, and it really became good. So we might give it a another try on demand. But but uh, 
we're into, let's see, we've seen episodes one and two of the sixth season, and they were okay. I'm waiting. You know, there's some, there's a, you know, a big enchilada hanging out there. You guys haven't explained yet. So when I get some explanation of that, I'll be happier. I haven't and, uh, seen all of the second episode yet because I watched the first two back to back, and I thought the first episode was really compelling. And then it went a little bit to, we're going to throw all this stuff in your face, and it just, halfway through the second episode, I actually just fell asleep. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, uh, well, uh, I think we're agreed. First, first, uh, season one stands unparalleled. Uh, yeah. Two, three, and four went down. Oh, yeah, I like two better than three. I like three better than four. And uh, five, I couldn't get through, but I'm going to try and give another another go. There's not a lot of horror TV on now that I watch. I could never get into Doctor Who. I know, I know that's that's almost a death penalty in the UK. <laughs> so I, could, I, I could never get into it. I'm sorry. I do love Doctor Who. I, yeah, I know I you do. I, uh, but have, have you seen heard... the Exorcist series that has just started? I have not seen the Exorcist series. Uh, oh no, no, no. We did start one. Yes, yes. We did. So far, I've only seen one episode. So far, so good. Yeah, that, that's what I think. I think I, I was really wary of the idea of a TV series based on The Exorcist. But having watched the, the first two episodes, I think it's, it's looking like it's going to be really good. Okay, I haven't seen episode two yet, so that's, that's all the things to do. And uh, but I must say, there's not a lot of the horror stuff on today doesn't doesn't get to me the way it did when I was a kid. No, I, my my wife and I have just started watching Downton Abbey, and I love it. <laughs> so we're, only, oh, we're, very only, good. we're only through three episodes, so I mean, there's there's what there's fifty episodes. We're only through three of them so far, but so far so far I love it. So uh, not that I not that I've turned off the horror. Just uh, I guess I'm getting hard to please. Uh, <laughs> They gotta. I just, well, you gotta come up with some new gimmicks, right? Exactly. I mean, you can't give me the, yeah, you can't give me the same stuff again. And that's, and I thought season one of American Horror certainly did that without getting too weird. The other ones got a bit weird for me, and and I, I see it was weirdness for weirdness' sake. I don't mind things being weird. You almost want them to be weird, but uh, it really, uh, you know, it, it, well, you know what I mean. <laughs> So, Frank, um, do you have any other projects that you have got coming up in the pipeline that you'd like to tell us about? Okay. Uh, well, it's my new book, it's, it's, which is all the creative work I'm doing now is on that book. And it's uh, the writing is basically done, so the torturous part of the getting it into production, et cetera, et cetera. But, okay, now, I haven't yet developed the 60-second summary. <laughs> and no uh, let me say out there with any okay, of you people okay. that have a project you have to you have to be able to explain it to a man on the street in 60 seconds or you're going to bore him to hell right <laughs> so if this doesn't work don't write off the book okay <laughs> right okay go go ahead we're in the elevator you have <laughs> you need to all right here we go you ready here we go okay my Uncle, this is in real life. My uncle owned a rooming house in Florida. He had a very strange guest come there in 1948. That guest stayed one night and was never seen again. My uncle put his trunk into storage. 
30 years later, my uncle dies. My cousin opens the trunk, sees, doesn't know what it is, sees that it has some journals, and he thinks it's family history stuff, and he sends it to me because I'm the family historian. And in there were the diaries and journals of Lawrence Talbot. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Awesome. And I started reading this, and I said, this, this man is a, is a delusional. He, he, thinks he, he thinks he's a mad killer who kills once a month. He thinks he's encountered monsters, and I start researching it. And I have been researching it for decades, and I cannot find one fact that contradicts him. So the title of my, my book, which I edit, I'm officially the editor. The author is Lawrence Talbot. <laughs> is called The Werewolf Remembers the Journal, The Testament of Lawrence Stewart Talbot. Fantastic. And in there, and to jump, since you know the movies, we'll jump ahead a bit. Uh, <laughs> Talbot, I don't, I don't talk about the movies in the book. Everything in the book is consistent with the movies, but I don't mention the book, the movies themselves, until the very end. Nor in the book do I confess to believing whether Talbot is, is delusional, or, or you know, whether he's, as Bud Abbott called him, a screwball, <laughs> or he's the real thing, right? I'm just, I'm just laying out uh, what Talbot wrote, and I'm putting in facts that I have found there's chapters in there called Editor's Insert with facts that I have found in my researches. And uh, I forgot where I was going with that, but, but uh, Talbot tells about, well, Talbot was, as we know, in House of Dracula was cured. And the, at the end of 1945, he was cured of lycanthropy. But at the beginning of Abbott and Costello, he's back and it has come back. That's 1948. So there's two years in there that are unaccounted for. And if you go through the movies, there's other years that are unaccounted for in Talbot's life. But during those two years near the end, he started writing his story at the, urgence, at the, at the urging of his fiancée, Melisa Morell, who he meets in House of Dracula. He writes his whole life story, and then, of course, he finds that his curse is returning. And he finds some other things are happening that are not very pleasant. And he is, and I won't give you the details, but the the facts, the things that are happening to him lead him into the plot of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And all the while, he keeps writing his journals. He brought he he came to uh, Florida from London carrying only a suitcase. But two weeks after he got there, and he hasn't been seen in two weeks because he was only in Florida for two or three nights before he disappeared forever. His steamer trunk showed up, and that's what my Uncle Joe put into, into storage until it was sent to me. And in that steamer trunk were the journals of Lawrence Stewart Talbot, which are published in the book. And in between some of the chapters, I put in what I call editor's inserts, where I talk about things that he mentions and say, here's how I've researched them and what I've found. That so sounds fantastic. That sounds so good. That's such an okay. exciting project. You can consider that I've already put in a pre-order. That is fantastic. So is this your first um, work of uh, historical... Historical fiction. Obviously it's fiction. And, <laughs> yes, and uh, I'm trying to... <laughs> I was trying to keep kayfabe, as they say. <laughs> now, make believe you're researching Lawrence Talbot's life, yes. right? Uh-huh. I find a lot of photographs. But, of course, I don't find any photographs of him with the monster, because who could have taken them, right? I, I don't find any photographs 
of him as the, the Wolfman. But I have a lot of photographs of uh, of Talbot and his father and the characters he meets that were taken either by newspapers or, you know, they are pictures from files or whatever in various archives. Uh, I, uh, I turned Lanwelly, that's the village where Lawrence Talbot came from, I turned that into a technologically advanced. The Talbot men love photography, and photography is very advanced in in the village of Lanwelly. So some of these photos are very old, but they look sparkling new. And uh, and so it's well illustrated, and it tells that the whole life of Barnes Talbot from from birth to his disappearance. Very cool. That sounds that sounds fantastic, man. Yeah. I hope it I hope it works. I so- I am prepared that some people. Some people don't like you messing with things, and they're just going to uh, write it off and say, this is ridiculous, you can't do this, and I'm prepared for that, but I think some people will love it. That sounds a few great. Close friends, a few close friends who know a lot about monster movies, I've let them read it read it so far, and it is, and they're, they're enjoying it. So I, I, I know I'll have a limited readership, and God knows I'll have limited sales, because that's the way the world is, but that's life. <laughs> He's you, my you, favorite monster of all In any event, you, you, you have a very engaging style anyway, Frank, so I think it would you know, transfer well over to that to that world. Well, time will tell. You'll 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 have a copy to look at before you know it. I'm excited to have it out next year sometime. Fantastic! That's that's fantastic. So people can get a hold of your book through well your current books. So that's a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, a vamp a vampire over London the. Uh, which is we did in our previous uh, interview we discussed that in a bit more depth that's about Bela Lugosi's time in the UK and two kind of key periods in his career and obviously the book that we've been discussing uh, tonight which is I Saw What I Saw When I Saw It all of those can be ordered through Cult Movies Press is that right? Yes you can you can either order them through Amazon and, and they're on Amazon UK uh-huh. and and uh or you can look for Cult Movies Press. I have a website. You can order them through me. And if you take the work to get to me directly without going through any websites, and it's not hard to find my email, I'll cut you a deal. <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. Um, and so, while, while we're talking about The Wolfman there, when I did watch Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein with my 13-and-a-half-month-old daughter this morning, during his initial transformation, she did stare and then she did one thing that she does quite a lot at the moment, which is just go, woof, woof. Okay. Woof, woof. She said woof, woof. Yeah. Anytime (laughs) she sees uh, anything that looks like a dog, woof, woof. I hope she's not a lycanthrope. (laughs) Do you know what's interesting? Again, like the, the first werewolf movie is probably get one of the best transformations, <laughs> and yeah. I think like the you know werewolf of London. I think is the the, the fact that it's moving rather than yeah. uh, rather than still, and obviously the earlier Jack Jekyll and Hyde. Um, I think it's the is it the Frederick March or the John Bart? I don't remember what one it is that uses the the, the coloured color filter, yep. which looks amazing. Yeah. Um, that's the Frederick March, I think. Yeah, yeah. So the kind of the earlier ones have have done slightly more interesting things. But in any event, Frank, 
thank you very, very much for taking the time uh, to speak to us. It's been fantastic to have you again. And we do encourage people uh, to pick up a copy of uh, both uh, <laughs> Vampire Over London and um, I Saw What I Saw and I Saw It. I really should have ordered a copy of A Quaint and Curious Volume of Forgotten Lore, and I'll no doubt do that in due course. But Frank, thank you very much for your time again. Really appreciate it. You're most welcome, and I'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Awesome, man. Thank you very much. So with that, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back after this. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Well, okay, so that was uh, that was our interview with Frank Delostrato. How awesome was that? That was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, it's nice to have him back. Yeah, no, it was uh, three years. It doesn't seem like three years since we it last doesn't. had him, but that was... Uh, Especially uh, not for a weekly podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're really stretching the definition of, um, of weekly. Podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. Um, so yeah, Frank's uh, work is available through Amazon. Um, it's also available direct through ha- through his publishers, which is Cult Movie Press or Cult Movies Press. So if you do a search for that online, you will find it. Um, so you also can, if you're so inclined, you can buy his trilogy of books, um, Vampire Over London, I Saw What I Saw When I Saw It, and a quaint uh, and curious volume of Forgotten Lore. Um, through Amazon as a trilogy box set, um, right. so that's you know something worth uh, considering. It's uh, eighty dollars in the US. Um, in terms of postage, uh, that might be something that you need to kind of come to. You know, some kind of I think he'll cut you a deal, is what he says in the the interview. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So if you go to Cult Movies Press and you're outside the US. Uh, email Frank Delastretto and he'll be able to to talk to you about uh, about prices and so on. We we certainly recommend uh, Vampire Vampire Over London, um, which is his book about Bill Lugosi's time in Britain. Uh, definitely worth a look. And it, uh, it's a beautiful bound book that um, has uh, it's a hardcover book. It's got uh, absolutely behind the uh, behind the cover. It's beautifully printed um, and you get a transcript of the stage play lots of different things like that some great photos and it goes in a really interesting uh, structure where it jumps between uh, his time in the UK in the 30s and then his time in the UK with Dracula on tour in the 50s Um, so that's awesome and then I saw when I saw I saw what I saw when I saw it which is a book that we've just discussed uh, with Frank and it's you know 
uh, it jumps around a lot, but it's about his life uh, in film and TV and the last section. It's basically presented in four books, and the last book is specifically about his love of Bela Lugosi um, and uh, his, you know, experience of you know becoming obsessed with this uh, incredible and versatile actor. Um, and Very he's also conversationally written. Yeah, it's brilliant, but really, you know... Easy to read. Easy to read, but also very well written. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's... I mean, it's it's a, it's a book where you don't realise how many pages you've read. Uh-huh. And then you go, wow, I've, I, I love books that are written in that just nice, flowing way where you don't want to put it down and you don't realise how long you've picked it up for. <laughs> and he never really falls into cliches, and he always... No. You, you know, you're reading something, and you kind of expect him to go one way, and quite often he'll just twist into another direction, um, just in terms of his use of language. And I've I've really enjoyed his, his work. Um, Great photos as well. Oh, within the book as well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some illustrations, um, and yeah, a nice... Uh, a nice acknowledgement for one uh, <laughs> one member of the Boho Po team. Spoiler alert, it's not me. <laughs> uh, there we go. So awesome, that was that was amazing to speak to Frank. Um, and yeah, it's a really interesting project with the Lawrence Talbot uh, book that he mentioned as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. That should be excellent. So it's... He is my favourite monster. I thought I was your favourite monster. Oh. <laughs> You're just my favourite monster between the sheets. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> you, you you saved it there. Yeah, I'm talking about your Halloween costume when you always dress up as a ghost. <laughs> I'm actually planning, trying to decide whether to dress as uh, the Macho Man or <laughs> the Wolf Man. Dress as John Cena. Because <laughs> Home Bargains have got these things for kids there's like a wee bodysuit uh-huh i don't think you'll fit into it somehow wouldn't matter nobody would be able to see you <laughs> okay guys well we'll wrap that up there um as ever abbott um, costello meet john cena ba, ba, that'd, be the, ba. that'd be the wrestling version of that film <laughs> okay um so as ever guys thank you very much for listening you can find us on facebook uh, Twitter, I'm at Badish Horror. Gil, you are at Gil Rokitansky. He always is. Yes. I don't. I don't know why, but he just always seems to be. Can't help myself. He just can't. He just can't. Uh, so yes, next week we're hoping to have an interview with one uh, Court One Tall. No. No. Okay. No. no. Next week. Uh huh. We have. No, we need to fire it out for then. Keep this in, that's fine. We need to okay. fire it in because he's got the thing. So, yeah, if we're interviewing Cortland Hall, that's the next thing. If we'll know it, then it'll be 31 and the Blair Witch. <laughs> okay. Is that okay? Yeah, it'll be something like that, right? Yeah. Like, or maybe people, both, maybe two. I don't, I don't think anyone is setting their calendar uh, on the event that we're going to do uh, one thing or the other. We I can am. Do, we can <laughs> do it, Yeah. <laughs> You barely are, let's be honest. <laughs> I sometimes turn up. <laughs> I 
thought I was going to have to get your daughter to to be my co-host for a while there. That would be great. It would just be you talking to her and her going, Hiya. Hiya. <laughs> She's, woof, very woof. She's very woof, cute. She's very cute. Yes. <laughs> and if you ask her what a cat says, uh-huh. cat says, Hiya. <laughs> She's a very confused child. Yeah. And a, a cow says, Boo. <laughs> certainly does it certainly does okay guys well thank you very much once again for listening please if you're enjoying the show shoot us an email uh, bodacioushorror at gmail.com um, we enjoy hearing from people we very rarely do um, <laughs> it could be you it could be you um, we uh, don't read stuff out in the show but we do appreciate anything. if you want it read out in the show tell us yeah but if it's secret sexy thoughts then yeah, we get too many of those. It's uh, yeah. a little bit annoying. But um, so well, on that's that Jason note... figures for you. <laughs> so on that note, guys, thank you very much once again for listening, and please don't have nightmares. Ooh. Ooh.